yet. Uh, so I guess I, I feel like I feel like I want to start off by with the guys. Guys, by a show of hands, who here would really like to be perfect present? Yeah. Okay. If you're not raising your hand, you think you already are. You know, and, and your wives are here, so. And, and, well, that's where we're coming to next. So, so guys or ladies, who here would like to have a perfect husband? My wife. <laughs> well, the focus is on the husband tonight. We'll get to the, the wives at another time. And 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 I, I really kind of jokingly go into this because, you know, Psalm 45 is really speaking about. Really, the perfect husband, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. And um, as I, as you guys know, the last few weeks I've been going through the Psalms and picking up where we left off a few months ago when we got through Psalm 43 and 44, and now we're in 45. And I, I just always love to see the hand of God working through quote-unquote circumstances, not that there are circumstances. But just to see God's hand working, and even a relationship to where I'm working and studying through on He's taking us on Wednesday nights, in connection to where we're even at and have been in the Book of Revelation. And if you've been, if you're here on Sunday morning, as we've been studying through the Book of Revelation, you know that last Sunday we started to go through chapter 19. Finished chapter 18, got through the first 10 verses of chapter 19, and I point this out this evening because in those first 10 verses of chapter 19, we're told about this great multitude in heaven who are praising God, singing hallelujah, saying hallelujah to God. And four times um, they, they, they use that word hallelujah, as I, as I, as I pointed out, and, and, and in doing so, give praise to God for various reasons. And as their praises are recorded, we really see that there's three specific reasons in the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19 for why God is, is being given praise at that time. And we know that it's, it's, it's at the end of the seven years of tribulation, and there's lots of things that are being accounted in detail for us in that chapter. And, and we see that the very first reason for why God is being sung hallelujah to and is given praises is because, you remember, the judgments of God, which which are being poured out on that time, were upon the harlot, Babylon. And, and in doing so, really God's judging the corruption in the earth, the evil that is on the earth and filled the earth since the beginning of the fall. And has continued on and really has come to a point, uh, a pinnacle point at the end of the tribulation period through the rule and reign of the Antichrist. And because of this, God is praised, and we looked at that on Sunday morning, praised because his judgments are declared to be true and righteous. And so we see that God is true and God is righteous. In addition to this, we also seen that God has given praise a second time. And the second time, or the second reason for why God has given praise in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 19, is because God is coming to the earth. Heaven sees that it's time, and God is coming to the earth, specifically at that time, to set up his throne 
and as they proclaim it to reign as Lord, the Lord God omnipotent, all-powerful. And we see the significance of this by understanding that when this happens, God's will will finally be done here on earth just like it has been done or is being done on heaven. And man, I, I long for that day. I give praise for the coming of that day. And the final reason, and this is where it kind of all culminates for where we're going to be at this evening in, in, in Psalm 45, is we see that the final reason for why heaven is giving their praise to God, which is specifically shown to us in verses 7 through 10, Revelation chapter 19, it says, because the marriage feast of the Lamb has come. The marriage feast of the Lamb has come. And in our study on Sunday morning, we talked a little bit about uh, in light of that, about the Jewish engagement and marriage process, and seen some, what I thought were some pretty cool insights into what it's going to be like for us. We're called the bride of Christ now to eventually be wed to the Lamb of God, to have Jesus Christ take us as his wife. And then when I see these things, the characteristics and the insight and some of the, 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 the the connection to what we know in relationship to what the Jewish engagement and marriage process looks like and who Jesus promises to be to us as a husband, um, I truly, in my own life, go, I want to be like that. I want to be that type of husband for my wife. And, and not only that, I look, I look forward to that day when I will be in that relationship Christ, my Lord and Savior. And I know as you ladies look at it and you look at Jesus Christ as the perfect husband, you also long for that day, even though your husbands are almost perfect, or, or like if you take a line from, from the Princess Bride, no, it's mostly, right, perfect, just make sure you mostly did. Our, your husbands are mostly perfect, because I know all of them, they're, they're awesome dudes, but they're still not the perfect husband like Jesus Christ is promises to be for us. And I mention these things all in conjunction this evening to Psalm 45, because in Psalm 45, this is what we're going to read and study through tonight. If you're born, if you have a study Bible, you're going to see that in the subtitle, which is an original text, it's given this title of a psalm of loves. And really what this is doing is, is this is identifying this psalm as a marriage psalm. But not just any marriage song, but the marriage song. And as you read through it, we see in verses 1, in verses 11, and in verse 14, the mention of a throne, of a scepter, and of majesty, which informs us that this wedding that is being written about is specifically the wedding of a king, who will take a queen. And in this, there are some who would identify this king as King Solomon. We look back over historically and some of the things that we know about Solomon. But this is um, not being referred to. This, these references are not being made to Solomon. Rather, what we see is, is that these references are specifically to one who is greater than Solomon. And this one is Jesus Christ, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, as we read about on Sunday from Revelation chapter 19. So, 
begin with, just to kind of reiterate that before we get into this psalm, I want to point out that if this psalm was just a secular love song, just a secular wedding song, then it would have not been given, as we see here also in the subtitle, given by the sons of Korah to the chief musician. The chief musician is a reference to the worship leader who would lead worship in the tabernacle of God, leading the congregation in that. And if the psalm was given to the chief, chief musician and it was used somehow in the worship of God, like the subtitles point us out and point us to, then this psalm, if it was used in this case, in this sense, as reference to King Solomon or any other earthly king, it would have been a blasphemous thing because it would have been leading the congregation to give worship to an, a, 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 a human being. And we know that only God is deserving of our worship. Furthermore, a second reason for why we know that this isn't being spoken of in relationship to an earthly king like Solomon or any other king is because in verse 6 it tells us that the throne which is being spoken of is God's throne. And yeah, obviously David and, and Solomon and all of David's descendants set upon an eternal throne who is ultimately the throne that Jesus Christ would sit upon and will sit upon, but it's speaking more specifically to the throne of God, not just figuratively. And last week, or, and lastly, the last reason for why we know that this is speaking of the of the King of Kings in relationship to his wedding or a, or, or, or a song dedicated to, to his wedding is if you look to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, um, there's a reference made there to this psalm. And, and in Hebrews 1, chapters, verse 2, Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the writer of uh, the, the book of Hebrews, in this first chapter, he's identifying Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And in doing so, he's quoting from many different passages, including this psalm, and when he does so, he clearly marks this psalm as prophetic, as messianic, in reference to Jesus Christ. And the point is, is whatever may have been some kind of historical use of the of this song, the ultimate message, the, the core message for us this morning or this evening is about Jesus Christ, but not just about Jesus Christ, because also in this song, the queen, we, the bride, as one who will be wed to the king of kings, is, is also mentioned in this song. So the message is about Jesus Christ, it's about his bride, we, the church, and in light of this, as we begin to break down the song, I'm going to read from it, from it here in a minute. But as we break down this psalm, I want you to see that what's being given to us is four pictures of our Lord. Four pictures of the bridegroom, and then this depiction of we, the church, his bridegroom, there's a picture of us being described as a thing of beauty. And it's a pretty cool thing when you think about that, because it gives us this picture of how um, Jesus sees us how God looks upon us as this thing of beauty. And I love that because often we don't, we don't feel that way. At least I don't feel that way. As, as a treasured, beautiful thing that God looks upon and God desires. Like a bridegroom desires his bride. That is a pretty cool thing. So, uh, with that, in Psalm 45, it says in verse 1, it says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer, 
And then he goes on, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword you, upon your thigh, you almighty one. And with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of your righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. Your love, you love righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women, and at your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughters, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty, because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughters of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among you, or among the people, will seek your favor. The royal daughter is glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in a robe, in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and Rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace instead of your fathers, shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. And Father, I pray that we too, like this psalmist, would see and realize just how wonderful you are. God, that we would see our most awesome position that you called us to and that you placed us in. And as we see you depicted and pictured here, Lord, that as we as men would strive to submit our lives to you and to be the husbands that you call us to be that our wives deserve. Not only that, Lord, we would see that you have great love for all of us. And Lord, as we see your love for us, relationship, God, that it would cause us to submit our lives in humility to you and trust in you even more, and that we also would be praised forever and ever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go through these these depicted, um, or these pictures that are depicted here for us, I, I think what we're seeing again is just the, the, the nature of our God, and see him as a person in light of the bridegroom, in light of the king who is our bridegroom. And as we look at verses 1 and 2 to begin with, we see that upon reading these words in verses 1 and 2, first of all, verse 1, where the psalmist is like, man, that are in my heart, there's some good stuff overflowing. And it's just got to come out. And, and, and obviously the psalmist is one who can take to pen and and put it to paper and express for 
us and having the benefit of today and these words and these feelings and thoughts that were overfilling him. And as we see this, it's pretty obvious that the song is from a heart that is inspired and excited. And, and the closest I can come to this in my own life is, um, is when I hear a song. And that's really what I relate this to because, man, there is times when a certain song will remind me of the goodness of God, and you know what? I just got to break out. I just got to bust it out. I got to sing and praise God, and um, uh, it, it's that just being so overwhelmed, no matter where you're at. Usually it happens to me in my truck with the windows up and I'm all alone, and, and that's probably for the benefit of others since I don't have that, but I think it's safe to say that the writer's heart was overflowing with, 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 with emotion here, and, and it was filled with emotion as we read through this, we see that it was filled with emotion as he was considering and meditating on the glories of the Son of God. And you know what? There's a therapeutic thing in that. It's a, there's a healing thing in that. Because, man, if you're rejoicing and giving praise over who God is and what he has done, it's like we were singing the cares of this life. What's, what comes in is joy and peace and gratitude and praise. And man, I love it when my heart's filled with that, even when I'm going through some difficult things. Not to say that this guy was, but we see what he's meditating on. And I mention all this because certainly there's been times when, when we all have had those opportunities when we've been confronted and emotionally overwhelmed with just the awesomeness of God, with the presence of God, with the knowledge of God, and the reality of his great love for and other special times. And as the psalmist considers the Son of God here, really the King of Kings, as the bridegroom, that's, that's how everything is really being pictured here. Four different individual ways that the bridegroom is being depicted. But the King, as the bridegroom, is being depicted. And as he looks on these things, and as he meditates on these things, he's filled with this, this, this overwhelmingness. He said, I just got to write it down. I just got to put and in the first two verses, the king is first being presented as a gracious son of man, or one who is more gracious than all the other son of men. And we know that that was a title given to Christ that he took upon himself, well, being the son of man. It comes from the book of Ezekiel. And it's not, it's not by mistake that it's in that same light as he first says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. And when we see the king being described here in verse 2, firstly as a man, and then a little bit later again in verse 6, as God, the king, being described or compared to or in light of uh, the sons of men, and as God, we again see how this can only be Jesus, who is the son of man, and also the son of God. And as the writer begins by speaking of the beauty of the king, he says he is, in verse 1, fair, or verse 2, fairer than all the other children or sons of men. And in this, we see, hopefully you see this, that this isn't a reference to his handsome physique. You know? It's not, a, it's not an outward beauty, but rather to the beauty of his nature. 
the attractiveness of who he is from inside. And when he continues, he specifically points to the grace that has been poured upon his lips. Now, when we think about that in light of Jesus Christ, man, there should be all kinds of things that start to pop into our minds. And this is where the attraction really lies for all of us. As we consider the words that Jesus spoke while he was here on this earth that revealed his gracious nature to us. You know, and this really was evident from the very beginning of his ministry all the way to the very end. And remember, when Jesus began his ministry, he went into the synagogue. And in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that when he was in Nazareth on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and he read from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And these were the words that he spoke to kick off his ministry. And in that passage of Isaiah, chapter, chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, to re and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And man, those are, those are gracious words that reveal the gracious nature of our bridegroom, of our king. Furthermore, when we see, furthermore, we see the same gracious nature of Jesus Christ revealed in the words that he spoke at the very end of his ministry. And, and in the same gospel, in Luke chapter 23, we are, we are told that even as Jesus hung upon the cross, as the innocent lamb who was slain and dying for our sins, if you remember, Luke records it, and he says that Jesus called out, saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In these instances, they truly are only the bookends of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The life and ministry of Jesus, whose lips were full of grace, as we are told many times in the gospel accounts about how the people who heard Jesus preach and teach of how they marveled over his gracious speech, which is filled with divine wisdom. And when we consider Jesus as the bridegroom, the king of kings, to be the gracious son of man as being depicted here first for us, we need to remember that the gracious words that Jesus spoke were always in line with the gracious things that he did. And man, as a husband, I look at this and I go, man, that needs to be true of my own life. The words that come off my, my lips need to be words of grace. But even more so, my, my life, in a way that I respond and treat my wife and those around me, they need to be actions of grace. Because that's how Jesus was. That's how he is. And when we consider these things in light of us being the bride, because that's also part of the role we fill in, in, in both man and woman here today as, as sons and daughters of, of God as well. But we being the bride, as we consider this in light of that, and Jesus being the bridegroom, really there are many things for us to take note of, many specific things to take note of in relation to the grace 
that Jesus speaks to us, the words of grace that he speaks to us, and the gracious things that he does for us. But before I move on, I really want to take us to the cross because that's where the, the, the true grace of God is shown to us as the bride. And I want to point out that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus graciously endured the cross, it says, for the joy that was set before him. And the cool thing about that is, is that clearly you and I are this joy, right? That's being written about, that's being spoken about, and, and we're the reason for why Jesus endured the cross, because of the joy that he receives in receiving us as a result of that. But we also know that that part of this joy, and here's, here's a really cool thing, that part of this joy that Jesus receives as a result of the grace that he gives us is the joy of presenting us as his bride to his Father who is in heaven. In fact, this is expressed by the words of Jesus, the gracious words of Jesus, who prayed in John chapter 17, verse 24, and called out loud before his disciples, speaking to his Father in heaven, and he declared in doing so his desire to have us with him in heaven, where his Father is, so that we too may behold the glory of his Father. In addition to this, we also know that in Jude, verse 24, it tells us that Jesus joyfully presents us as faultless before glory of God. And this is an amazing thing to realize that Jesus finds joy in us as his bride. Have you ever thought about it like that? That, joy, that Jesus finds joy in us as his bride. And furthermore, it's an amazing thing to realize that Jesus has this joyful expectation, just like we have a joyful expectation, but he as a bridegroom has this joyful expectation expectation to be able to one day to take us to his home, to our home, in order to present us to his father as a faultless bride. Guys, I don't know if you remember that time when you when you know you weren't married to your wife yet, but you like you brought her to meet your mom and your dad. And then you didn't do it with, with shame. You know, you brought her, and you're like, Dad, check her out. She's awesome. She's wonderful. You know, and, and when you think about that, as this is being depicted here, and how we receive this through the graciousness of our bridegroom, there's a pretty cool thought that Jesus has this joyful expectation to bring us before his Father one day into his presence so that we may behold his glory, but, but also so that we can be presented as this faultless bride. One who is without spot, one without blemish. That's a pretty cool thing. As we read on in verses 3 through 5, it says, he, the psalmist goes on, he says, Gird your sword, speaking of the king, the bridegroom king, he says, Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty, Ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies, and the people fall under you. And in these verses, we're given the second picture 
of the bridegroom king. And when we read this, we see that the picture that's being painted for us is of one who is this victorious warrior. And as a husband, that's who I want to be. Right? I'm the defender. I'm the protector. I'm the victorious warrior. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's in us as men. And that's in us because that's who our God is like. That's who our bridegroom king is. He's a victorious warrior. And in light of this, I really think it's worth pointing out that we're living in a time really when this, dare I use this word, but this militant side of our Christian faith is, is kind of criticized. And it's even looked down upon and, and eliminated in, in, in the church today. And really, it's, just, it, 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 it's an attitude that is not only unbiblical, but it's, it's dangerous. Especially in light of the fact, listen, let me put it in context for you. Especially in light of the fact that Scripture makes it clear that we have an adversary, right? We have an adversary who is looking to destroy us. Furthermore, Scripture makes it clear that we need to take up the full armor of God if we are going to be able to stand. And Scripture also makes it clear that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And when we look to Scripture, we also see from what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, that God has been at war with Satan and war, at, and war against sin since the very beginning. But we also know that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, is also, according to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when we consider that our bridegroom king is this victorious warrior, you know what it should do? The very same thing that it does to our wives' hearts when they see that we're willing to defend them and to protect them and to fight for them. Because when I understand that that's what my God is like, that, that my God is, is a bridegroom king who is a victorious warrior and brings comfort and peace to my heart and to my mind. Remember, Jesus, the Lamb of God, it tells us that he suffered and that he died on the cross, not only to save sinners, but also to defeat Satan, is what it tells us. And this is clearly defined for us in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 through 15, which says, it says, and you, in verse 13, being dead in your trespasses and in, and, and, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all of your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was against us and, was, and which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed, in other words, in doing so, having disarmed principalities and powers, and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Where? At the cross. How? Through his death. And we know from last Sunday's study, as we begin Revelation chapter 19, that one day very soon, Jesus is going to return as this warrior. And he will defeat his enemies, and he will establish, in doing so, his righteous kingdom here 
on this earth. And in the meantime, we can see that you and I, that we fight the battle today from a place of victory. I know you've heard that before, but be reminded of it, that we fight from a place of victory. And according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it tells us that we, who are the bride of Christ, who has this, this, this bridegroom who is a victorious warrior, that we don't use human weapons in our fight. Rather, we use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we rely upon and rest in the power and in the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And this is important to remember, because in other words, Jesus, who is our bridegroom king, it, it points out the fact that he has fought, that he is fighting, and that there is coming a time also will he will again fight on our behalf, and according to what we read here in verse 4, he does this prosperous, prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. Now, what does that mean? In other words, Jesus is fighting on behalf of truth. He's fighting on behalf of humility, and he's fighting on behalf of righteousness. And when we look at that in regards to, well, that there's an adversary to these things, it should go, in my mind, I go, why? Why would anybody in their right mind want to oppose these kinds of things or battle and enter into or wage warfare against what is true, against something that is, someone or something that is exhibiting humility, or, or why would they rage against righteousness? But the fact of the matter is, is that, is that the adversary, we talked about this this last on Sunday in regards to Babylon and it being the, the seat of deception and Satan being the, the, the one who is deceiver. We have to remember that the adversary is a deceiver. And when we engage in this battle, we need to remember that the battle that we fight is not really a waging of war. Rather, it's a waging of And in doing so, we are ultimately looking for men and women to be reconciled to God. It's a war being waged for peace in that sense. And in doing so, we, as the bride of a victorious warrior, then fight in a certain way. Remember, I told you that if we didn't see things from God's perspective on Sunday, that we are going to deal with people. And that comes back to this, because as we see ourselves as a bride of a victorious warrior, then we see that we too must share his love. We must serve those around us in humility. And then we also, looking at the, the sword of the spirit as one of our weapons of warfare, we must also be willing to declare his words, which are true. And really, this moves us on to the third picture that we see here of our bridegroom king, which is given to us in verses 6 and 7, where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is, your scepter, is the scepter of your kingdom, and your, you love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than, than, than your companions. And really, verse 7 can, can, uh, kind of transitions us into the, the second or the very last thing. But, but, but as we look at this, 
these verses, um, what it's pointing out for us is the fact that our king, and I know it's obvious there, but this is the third picture, or the third thing that we need to see, is that our bridegroom king is a righteous king. Now, that may not seem all too, too significant when you go, yeah, God is righteous. But think about this in relationship to a husband, because how many wives here will like their husband to be completely righteous? Well, one of you, for sure, I heard a little chuckle. <laughs> And, and in these verse, verses, what we see is, is that, first of all, the psalmist is clearly affirming the eternal reign of the eternal Son of God. God, your God. Do you get it when we read there? And, and again, the psalmist is affirming the eternal reign of the eternal Son of God, but in doing so, he's declaring that his reign, which is, which is eternal, is also righteous. And first of all, this means that our bridegroom king always does what is right. Yeah, I mean, I would love to be that husband. That way, my wife would always be wrong. <laughs> Not just because of that reason. But you know what? How much easier would it be to be that godly leader that God calls us to be if we always did the right thing, if we always chose the right thing, if we always desired the right thing? Not, not just about being right, but having that within us when we go, yeah, I want to do the right thing. I always choose the right thing. I have a desire for what is right. And that is, that is what our bridegroom king is. He is righteous. He desires what is, what is right. He does what is right. And you know, not only is this unlike every husband on the earth, because we're not perfect, the truth is, as we look at this in regards to our righteous bridegroom king having an everlasting throne, we need to see that it's really unlike any of our leaders today. And that's why we long for that day when the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who is righteous, who is going to rule in righteousness, is here upon this earth because we don't have to worry about a bone leader or someone who says he's going to do something and then doesn't do it. But it also means that through Jesus' reign, what it means here, as we see that he's this righteous king, it also tells us that all there is coming a day when all evil will be removed. And I think about that on a personal level, first of all, because I know that evil is still bound up in my heart because I still sin, but it reminds me of the fact that when I'm wedded to the Lamb of God, to this bridegroom king who is righteous, that I will go from being positionally righteous because of the because of his blood to being truly righteous, where there will no longer be evil or sin in me. And man, that's an awesome thing. And again, that's a picture for us when we go back to Ephesians because it tells us that husbands are to wash their wives or sanctify their wives with the washing of the word of God. Because we do that, husbands, and that helps to purify. And it's this picture for us of what's going on with us now in our relationship with Jesus Christ, him being the bridegroom and we being the bride, but there is coming a day when we will no longer sin no more. When that, we will no longer just be positionally righteous, we will be righteous without sin, without evil. We'll be taken away when we are wed to the bridegroom king. But all of that, there'll be a time when all evil Remember, Jesus is at this very moment reigning in heaven. 
And that's one of the reasons why we're positionally righteous, because when we sin and Satan comes before the throne of God and, and, and condemns us, Jesus goes, acts as our advocate, right? That's what he tells us in Hebrews. And seated at the right hand of the Father, in doing so, he's serving as our kingly priest. It says, after the order of Melchizedek, nevertheless, there is coming a day when Jesus will return to rule upon the earth, it says, in truth and righteousness, and at that time, we get that at that, at that time, we, according to Revelation chapter 5, and also according to Revelation chapter 20, it says, we who have been wed to Jesus at that time will return with him and reign by his side and share his glory. That's a beautiful thing. I don't understand the full ramifications of that, but we're getting a little glimpse of what that And in the remaining verses, in verses 7 through 17, I'm not going to read through them. Um, we see the, but I just want to, I want to point out that the last picture of the bridegroom is given to us in these verses. And as he is seen in verse nine, uh, oh excuse me, and also uh, what we see is that as this last picture of the bridegroom is given to us, he's we, he's seen in verse nine, standing alongside. us. The queen. You become the queen when you're wed to the king. And as the king is pictured here, he is pictured as a glorious bridegroom. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that was one of the, the when, when I got married, I got dressed up. I got a haircut. I made sure I was shaved. You know, I, 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 I crimped. I had a best man that made sure I looked good. I had a tuxedo on. You know, and, and you're looking good. You're there in all your glory. And, and maybe not all of you had that. Maybe maybe somebody, you know, there's ways that that's depicted differently for each of us. But you were looking sharp. And you wanted to look sharp. And this is the idea as we look at the, the bridegroom now. He's pictured as a glorious bridegroom. And we're also told that the bride is also glorious within the palace, as we read here. And in light of this, we see that the sharing of God's glory, or the sharing in God's glory, comes as a result of dwelling with Him, being in His presence. There's no gloriousness in us apart from Jesus Christ, in other words. Everything that is good, everything that is lovely, is because Jesus is in us. And that will even further be manifested in the future as we rule and reign with Christ and share his glory. We become like him in every way. And in these verses, we see what we really see here is this royal wedding is being described to us. And, and it begins in verses 7 through 9 with this preparation of the bridegroom. And when we look at this anointing, first of all, in verse 7, we see that his anointing is not as, a, as an anointing as a king, but he's anointed as the honored guest at the wedding feast. And the honored guest is the bridegroom and the bride. I mean, I remember at the reception, a lot of the weddings that I've done, is not necessarily at ours, but they have this their own, they get their own special table, right? It's all about the bride. It's really all about the bride. <laughs> but it's also about the bridegroom. I mean, that's their day. Everybody's there to honor them. And that's what we see going on with this anointing. But the cool thing about it is we see that this anointing 
is with the what? Because it says the oil of what? The oil of gladness. It goes back to this joy thing that we were talking about before, which represents really the eternal joy. Think about this. It's the eternal joy that belongs to the bride and to the bridegroom. And this reminds us of the fact that in the presence of Jesus, it tells us there is joy forevermore. And it also reminds us of the fact that when, 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 it, when the time comes for us to be snatched out of here, to be raptured out of here, to be taken to heaven with Jesus, it reminds us of the fact that that there will be no more tears. That will be wiped away and so forth. Joy forevermore. I don't really have the time, I think, to go into the remaining section of this. Is this is we have really the complete depiction of the bridegroom here in, in, in all four pictures. But the thing that I, I want to close and I kind of started off with in pointing us to is that in verses 10 to 13, what we really read about is the, the preparation of the bride. You have the preparation of the glorious bridegroom with the anointing and the, and the, the, the dimension of his clothing and, 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 and all of those things. But the, the, the verses 10 to 13 is the preparation of the bride. And, and um, it reminds us of the fact that, that of two things. It should remind us of the fact of two things. First of all, that we're told that as the bride of Christ, we need to keep ourselves set apart. We talked about some of these cool correlations in regards to the Jewish wedding customs and, and, and how there was a period of time where the, the, the bride and the bridegroom were separated, but they kept themselves set apart as so that they could prepare for their wedding day. Of course, the bride had certain things that she was doing, and the bridegroom had certain things that he was doing in order for that preparation for that. And we, being the bridegroom, as we're set apart from Christ, we're also set apart from the world, and we're set apart from certain things in order that we may be prepared. And it tells us that in doing so, we're to keep ourselves without spot, keep ourselves from the world, to be without spot, to be without blemish, to, to, to seek to be sanctified in this time that we have as we're waiting the Lord's return. Because we want to be that pure bride for Christ. That, that we are in him and and, 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 and and so we keep ourselves from the world blameless, without spot, without wrinkle, like Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27 tells us. And obviously we don't do that perfectly. I mean, when we look at the church as a whole and not just our lives individually, we see that the church has got some problems. We do. But the thing about it is, is, is we also need to look at ourselves in relationship how Christ sees us. Because what's being depicted here as a bride is being prepared is that there's beauty. And, and I want to point that out again is that our Lord, what he shows us is that he sees us in our sin. He sees us as lovely. He loves us. And he sees beauty in us as his bride. ourselves in light of our sin, of our 
Guys, man, just let me remind you of this. It's one of the worst things that I've ever done in my life. Just to be clear. I don't think we as children really understand how that leaves a part of our lives. And so I would encourage us to, 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 to really strive Father, thank you for um, these reminders. Thank you for these pictures, God, that open up our eyes and our understanding. Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for who you see us as and who we are.